The title for the evening talk is No Problem. A familiar expression that's, uh, I'm sure, quite familiar to us, and that is uh, used in a variety of different ways and meanings. At times, it just means simple, easy, no big deal, no big shakes, just no problem. And that's a colloquialism that's useful, fulfills a, a place in the grammar of language somehow. At other times, no problem is offered as a denial of difficulties. Sometimes presented as a snappy comeback. No problem. No, not worthwhile worrying about. You are worrying unnecessarily. Um, when I was born and, and raised and where I spent much time of my life in Argentina, this is a very standard expression. In fact, in the Argentinian version in Spanish is no te hagas problema, which is more twisted. Do not make a problem for yourself. That's what it really Do not make a problem for yourself. And I, I distinctly remember a friend of the family, oh, some 30, more than, yeah, 30 years ago, because that's, my daughter is 39, and she was probably nine or, or younger than that before. Um, a friend of the family was always telling his wife, no te hagas problema. So we, we call him, we gave him this name. We forgot his actual name and we call him, no te hagas problema. And, and it was a, a very disempowering way of, of dealing with things. Uh, uh, another sort of misuse of the word no, of the expression no problem happened in the island of Jamaica some 20 years ago maybe and some of you may remember that there was a, a politician who used that as his slogan no problems I, I remember being in Jamaica on vacation and everybody was wearing these t-shirts no problem and I couldn't figure out what was going on. They were given out as part of a campaign. And this man identified his name with the no problem thing and won by a landslide. And of course you can imagine the consequences. No problem, he didn't do anything. I mean, the poorer got poorer, the richer got richer, of course. And, uh, and his administration ended in disaster. One last, last, uh, last item in this list of no problem as dismissal. <laughs> I remember being once in Buenos Aires in Argentina in the lobby of a, one of the main hotels waiting for a, a visiting scientist who I was to meet there, coming for a meeting. And there was a, an American uh, man um, talking to a bellboy in English. And at the end of a long explanation of what he had to do, 
the bellboy, the bellboy answered, no problem. With, a, with an accent, but no problem. His friend, another bellboy, was amazed how that, that his friend knew English. Oh, he said, I didn't understand the word. <laughs> the only word in English that he knew <laughs> expression was no problem. <laughs> he dealt with all situations that way. So, the point I'm trying to make here is that it's clearly unskillful, unwholesome, and sometimes outright cruel <coughs> to use this expression as dismissal of problems that are confronted. In fact, the only skillful thing to do with problems is dealing with them. Absolutely. And in dealing with the problems that we face, not only do we have to confront those problems, but our friends and, and the Sangha in a case like this, uh, uh, hopefully will support us in that. Not in denying them, but in looking at them and see what needs to be done. And indeed, in our morning sessions, that go under the label of parenting discussions, uh, we do much of that. You bring up your problems to share with us, and uh, they do, as certainly they did today, get a lot of attention from the rest of the Sangha. There's, there's no denial there. In fact, uh, what we are learning to do, which I think is quite impressive in that group, is a, a way of listening that could be called deep listening or inner listening. So you can see that people are, are moved by what they hear. And they experience not only what they hear, but what moves them. The inner turmoil sometimes, or joy sometimes, that comes out of the sharing. Now, there are different ways of attending to problems, and I want to spend a little time talking about that. The most common way, the com most common strategy that we've been trained in, educated in, since since our preschool days, probably, is what goes under the name of problem-solving. Get a problem, solve it. And usually, in doing that, we locate the problem out there, out somewhere. We find a location for the problem, and which is usually out somewhere. As I said, this training can start from from preschool, finding that you cannot put a, what is it, a round peg in a square hole, and you know, just basic training toys, if you wish, tools. And then we graduate to picture puzzles of a simple kind, of more complicated kind, which we still continue to do until 
in our adulthood and um, many forms of play involve problem solving certainly many games of skill like chess involve problem solving I know one of my grandchildren who loves to fix toys he's uh, eight or nine not quite clear on that and, uh, and he, like everybody else, breaks toys here and there, but he loves to fix them and, and has a skill to do that. And, and this goes throughout our educational system. I mean, secondary, higher education, we're constantly having to solve problems. Tests very often are huh? problem-solving um, tests. And of course all this is useful and beneficial and, and necessary. Science particularly is into problem solving. Math of course is almost 90% problem solving, but any kind of science, physics, chemistry, biology, are into that understandably, turning problem-solving into a fine art. Isaac Newton, the founder of modern physics, which is a strange guy he was. And, uh, one of the things he said is that he thought that the universe was put to us by God as a gigantic treasure hunt. Gigantic treasure hunt. And we were to find the clues the, to, to proceed along this treasure hunt. Medicine, of course. And, and, and you know, most of our jobs are involved with problem solving. And anybody who's doing computer work, of course. No, is that? Household work. I mean, fixing things in the house. Fixing things right here at IMS, a maintenance department, spends all its time practically fixing stuff, problem solving. In all of this, of course, the outcome of the effort of solving the problem matters. But, and equally, that outcome, which generally in the examples I've given happens outside somehow, in the, in the test sheet, in the, in the school, in the building, when, when maintenance here tries to fix something. Besides that problem solving that happens outside, the outcome of that, that's important, there is something else happening in here inside, which is the reward of praise, of approval, even acclaim, that we get, that little children get, that high school children get, that college students get, that, that employees get in the jobs, etc., etc. The praise, acclaim, approval that comes from succeeding 
in that problem fixing. And then, of course, also the internalized process that happens. All those voices of approval tend to be internalized and then we praise ourselves. If as children we have depended upon the praise of our parents, then later on we manage to internalize those voices. Ha! How good I am. And so on. So there's an outcome outside and the internal, this phenomena inside. And, you know, it's this internal phenomena inside that very often ends up being the motivating, the most, the strongest motivating force in our problem-solving endeavors. So, insofar as what I'm saying is true, and, you know, you may agree or disagree, but anyway, um, certainly... If, if not the, the main motivating force, it's certainly a major motivating force. And in this movement towards getting praise or, or gathering self-praise, etc., the beneficiary, the, the unique beneficiary is the I. That image of ourselves that we identify with. Something that sometimes is felt like a, a rush of adrenaline in the body or, or familiar feeling in the body sometimes. But it's connected with I, with me, and with mine. I mentioned Isaac Newton because he too is a, an extreme example of this. A man who was perhaps the greatest scientist and certainly the most acclaimed scientist in his time and, and maybe the greatest scientist of all times, so I could be debated, but among a handful of them, he was constantly fighting for getting credit for everything under the sun. And he may be right. Because he discovered, he worked at a lot of things. And he found, he invented a lot of things. He, for instance, had a, 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 a bit of polemic with somebody else, I forgot whom, about the invention of calculus. And he wasn't happy with all his other achievements. Because somebody claimed that he had invented calculus and not him. And, and, and just to give an example, very distant from Newton, which, which refers to myself, not, not in that area, but still, it's the same sort of reflection. Uh, which, which shocked me, and I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I, I was doing a sabbatical at Caltech. I had, when I went to Caltech to do that work, I changed my field, I mean, not totally my field, I changed the the, the area I was working in. And I worked in another area. As I was in the lab one day, a colleague comes to me and says, hey, I saw an article just came out in this or that publication about the work that you've been doing for 
that made for many years, you know, my, my area, so to say. And so my immediate reaction was to, as soon as I finished what I was doing, get up, walk to the Caltech library to see what had been done in this area to which I had devoted, say, at least five years of my life trying to make that area. You know what? Halfway along, I realized I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested. And I turned around, went to my lab, and I don't remember I ever read that paper. In other words, and, and I was shocked then to discover that, because I discovered that I, it wasn't the field that interested me. It was the kind of acclaim that I could get by being there first. And although this, this may be very obvious, it's a hard thing to discover about oneself. Because one has lived under the illusion that it was something else one wanted. So, as I was saying, very often the beneficiary of these problem-solving activities is not the world, what matters is not the outcome, but what matters is the I. And how much one matters, how much the other matters, could be discussed. Other times, instead of loca locating the problem out there, we locate, we recognize that there's a problem in here. Something that has to be dealt with. Typically, of course, in medicine, the problem in one's body. In such cases, perhaps not surprisingly, given the force of cultural trends, what we end up doing very often is dealing with the problems of the body just the same way as we deal with the problems out there. We treat the body as an with the same philosophical approach that we treat an, a car when we go to fix it. We treat the body as something mechanical. And, and that's the way much of medicine, the way much of medicine has um, articulated its paradigms, its way of dealing with illness. And another example of this, dealing with the in here as well, with the methods of the out there. I was reading um, recently, I've just got a subscription to Utne magazine, Utne Reader it's called. And with it came a little booklet about the Y2K problem. It means that for those of you who haven't got bombarded by this language yet. It means the, the difficulties computers are expected to run into at the beginning of the year 2000. Why 2K, year 2000? And of course, it, it dealt a lot with all this problem, the solvings and the lack of food there will be and the inability to book airplanes and all that. Things that we love to dealing. Now the Atna reader being a 
more enlightened than other publications, also decided to look into the inner consequences. Loneliness, sense of isolation, whatever it was. But the language they use is internal self-management. That's the title. <laughs> so it's the same language, same methodology used outside. And, you know, in traditional counseling methods, traditional psychotherapy method, there is much of that. The techniques of used in the world out there, translated, analytical techniques, management techniques, translated to the world in here. When spiritual practice turns its attention to the world in here, it does it with a far more ambitious and radical goal. The goal, of course, particularly in the Buddhist tradition, is the end of suffering. And these teachings make it very clear that we cannot solve our inner problems, well, suffering, another way of saying suffering, cannot be done by negotiating our way around each problem that presents itself. It's, n it's not just trying to avoid every obstacle or finding a way to deal with every obstacle as they come. Something far more radical needs to be done. And this far more radical thing, I like to call it solving ourselves. Because it involves a shift not out there, not in the in, in, in the inner world with the techniques of out there, but it, it involves another sort of shift. Let, let, me, let me just... Just give an example. Could be, could be a, a cry child, but but that's too complicated. Let me just look at a, a simpler problem. Maybe connected a leaky faucet, huh? <laughs> leaky faucet. Okay, we have a leaky faucet. Of course, we can fix a le fix a leaky faucet. Although sometimes I I, I tell you I have one at, at home I've never been able to to fix completely. But there's a two aspects here. The leak and the faucet, that is the problem of the faucet, and my relationship to it. And until I can shine some light on what is my relationship to it, the leaky faucet will continue to be a problem even after it stops leaking. If my problem is, for instance, as could very well be, I have a tendency to that, a wish to control, a wish to, to, to be a perfectionist, to have a house where there's nothing else to be done, 
with a list of things to be done have all been crossed out, <laughs> then that leaky faucet will continue to be a problem. If it's fixed, but if it's not fixed, of course, because I'll, I'll go bananas, you know. I'll hear the, the drops falling, <laughs> even, even from the other end of the house. But if I fix it, then I'll be always waiting for it to start leaking again, or, or thinking, well, what's the next thing to do? So solving oneself involves that, involves having a different attitude, having a different relationship with things. It's just as simple as all that. Just wrote down there a quote from a, a member of our Sangha. She shared in, in our group, and uh, we, no, no, nothing unusual, I just remember that quote, that's all. She said, I had this pain in my back all last week, and my life was disrupted. So, you can see the pain in the back, sure. But the life disrupted. The life is disrupted only if you set your mind to have a life in a certain way. But how, how about living that, with, that way with a pain in the back? And working around that. Not that, not that it's not painful. I'm not dismissing the problem. But I am saying that life was disrupted. Is what we create additional suffering for ourselves. Another thing about problem solving, and I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this. I'll raise my hand. And the question is, how many of us spend time in the sitting in this hall reviewing problems? <laughs> Thank you. Reviewing problems that we we have. Absolutely no way to working on them. It's, uh, it's for next week or next month or next year. Is how we are going to book ourselves into this retreat. How are we going to beat the odds to be admitted? Whatever, you know. It's no object. I mean, no practicality there. Still, there is the craving for that particular activity. And who does a craving? You guessed it. I, me, mine. The very ego that gets fulfilled, that is, that gets born, that trips out on fixing and solving problems. And I use the word born because that's very much the description of the Buddha. The I gets born from grasping or from rejecting, from wanting or from not wanting, and 
this birth of the eye is what leads to suffering. We identify with this I, me, and while in the grip of the eye, there is no access to spiritual dimensions, which is another way of saying there's no access to freedom. And in all of this, I must say, there is a, there's a great gift in these problems. Because all this process that I'm describing, that is the process of our relationship with the problem, gets illuminated when we take the time to stay with the problem and look at the problem and see what what happens inside us around that. And only when we begin to see what, what we make out of problems and how we entangle ourselves with these problems rather than just simply solve them, when we begin to see that, can we shift? Can we begin to disentangle us from this mess. That's what I call solving ourselves. So, problems are the arena where we have the opportunity to see how can we solve ourselves. And of course, if we solve the problems in, along the way, fine, no? sure. It's like creating space for a, an intuition, an insight, empowering this insight so that it can lift us out of the trap of the eye. When we come to the point of seeing directly of coming to understand that, then, and this is what I'm saying is important, this, then we discover that the very nature of our existence is unproblematic. Let me repeat that, because I'm willing to, to stand by that. And I promise you it's true. The very nature of our existence is unproblematic. So, and what are, what are the difficulties? What are the problems that come our way? Problems that come, as I said, in reality or even in the memory of things. And of the anger and impotence that something sometimes grips us when we're 
confronted with those problems. That, painful as it is, can be the source of incredible <coughs> insights. And, and to, to spell out these insights may not be very helpful, but anyway, I can give, give a sense of that, an outline of that. For me, the outline of, outline of that insight is that the source of pain, the prison, is in expecting things to be different from what they are. It's so simple. And, and yet, it's not very effective if I say it and you hear the words, just words. But if you come to see that yourself as an outcome of a problematic situation, then the whole burden of the situation dissolves. And there's something extraordinary in experiencing at close range the dissolution of the problem. Dissolution of the problem. Oh, this other oh, problem as a problem, as burden. here hesitating about talking about my granddaughter. All, all I wish to say is that my granddaughter who's quite ill, her illness has resulted in incredible, incredible shifts in the hearts of the family. And, and things that Situations that seem to be so hard and, and, and frozen, and they've dissolved. Not, not her illness is there. And, and the outcome is unknown, unknown, totally unknown. But other things have happened around. As the burden that accompanies the problem dissolves. This, this is a generality of, applied to what I just said. There's a shift, a realignment of those who are connected with that so-called problem. It, it may not happen immediately, but there's a possibility of that. And we discover that out of a problem, whether it's a serious illness or a leaky faucet, not being frivolous here, it depends, for, depends what comes our way. Out of a problem, 
a gift can emerge that we could not have imagined. And the gift, again, is difficult to put in words, but it's as if a boundless space that we didn't know about becomes available to us. Let's sit for a few minutes.